Luke 15. Uh, probably one of the greatest uh, uh, pictures, or if not the greatest picture of redemption that we're going to read about uh, today here in Luke 15. Great passage of Scripture as we look at the story of the prodigal son, which really we could, uh, that story would probably be better named uh, the, the, the story of, of the two lost sons, but we'll, we'll get there. Um, a lot of you, probably most everybody in here knows, I've shared multiple times that I had a period, I had a season in my, uh, in my life as a teenager that was characterized by reckless, rebellious, wandering. Anybody else, was anybody else a reckless, rebellious, uh, wandering teenager? Um, and I got, uh, at the age of 16, after getting myself in a lot of trouble with drugs and alcohol and just being crazy, um, got myself in a lot of trouble, was locked up for a year at the age of 16, and, and, um, and uh, you know, I was just stunned, I was astonished by the undeserved, overwhelming, reckless love of God. As I saw God's love worked out through God's people, and the unconditional grace that I was shown, the unconditional love that I was shown, man, I, I just, I gave my life to Christ, um, and He walked with me through such a terrible a period of my life, and, and, and my life was forever changed. Um, but, uh, but then pretty soon, within a couple of years after that, I went from being this rebellious kid to being buttoned-down, religious, uh, judgmental, uh, and, and, and keeping score, and, well, all you guys over here need to be doing this, this, and that. And I, I very quickly became judgmental. I became religious. I became proud. Um, and throughout my walk with Christ, I've learned, like the old song says, I'm prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. I'm prone to wander in at least two ways. And maybe you relate to these. One, I am prone to wander. I'm still to this day tempted uh, to wander from God by open rebellion. And some of us in this room are in open rebellion against God. Um, I wander from God through open rebellion. I see a sin here. I see something that looks so good, and I choose that thing over my Father, over intimacy with my Father. Um, but I also wander from God by keeping the rules and being righteous in and of myself, uh, seeking a righteousness that is my own, choosing to look good outside rather than truly being good and transformed on the inside. I wander from God by being a rebel, and I wander from God by being a rule keeper and just trying to look the part without really being the part, living a lie, like Jerry said earlier. And today in this room, some of us in this room, today, not in theory, not hypothetically, but some of us today in this room have wandered into some kind of foreign land of sin. Uh, we have uh, seen something that's caught our eye, and we, think it, we thought it was going to be fulfilling, and we're searching for fulfillment and for happiness and a place that we're never going to find it. And some of us are giving ourselves over right now, today, as we speak. Some of us in this room are giving ourselves over to addiction, to pills or to other drugs or to alcohol, giving ourselves over to addiction to porn or to illicit sex. Um, some of us are selling our souls for a bigger boat or a nicer car. Uh, some of us today in this room, uh, we're giving ourselves over and we're in this open rebellion to God. And today in this room, some of us have wandered into the land of perfectionism and rigidity and we're keeping all the rules, and we're keeping score, and we're demanding that God keep up His end of the bargain. And when life doesn't go my way, I rail against God. I did my part. Why aren't you doing your part? Uh, some of us in this room can easily compare our righteousness to the righteousness of others, um, can easily size people up, 
and judge others by our own standard of righteousness, and we've become bitter, and we've become arrogant, and we've become harsh, and the scariest thing is we don't even know it. And some of us are both of those things simultaneously at the same time. Um, in Luke, by the way, am I the only one that's prone to wander in open rebellion and also prone to wander in, in, in religiosity? Is that just me? Okay. Uh, me and Kristen? All right. <laughs> Two of us in this room. Will? All right. Um, in Luke 15, Jesus is going to tell three just world-changing, earth-shattering stories. But these stories are, are, are prompted by the, the two groups of people that are gathered around Jesus. So go with me to Luke 15, 1. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. We're all drawing near to Jesus. And the, the, the sense of the verb here is that there, there's just the pattern. This is the pattern of Jesus' life and ministry is that tax collectors and sinners, moral failures are continually drawn to Jesus. What does that say about Jesus? That moral failures, social outcasts, are continually drawn to him. Rebels are continually drawn to him. Um, and, and that's just kind of, he, he attracts the irreligious. He attracts the rebellious. He attracts the failures. He attracts the outcasts. Back in Luke 7, this, uh, this woman, this sinful woman, walks in off the street and she washes Jesus' uh, uh, feet with her tears and dries them with her hair while the, while the, while the Pharisee looks on kind of with scorn and condescension. Every time we see Jesus interact with an outcast, an outsider, and an insider, it's the insider that's appalled by Jesus and it's the outsider that's drawn to Jesus. So what does that tell us about Jesus? Um, and if outcasts and rebels and moral failures are attracted to Jesus, but they're not attracted to the church, we're either preaching a different message or we're preaching it in a different way than Jesus does. Who else is around Jesus? Verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes were around Jesus. And they're so happy that all of these other people are drawn to Jesus, right? The Pharisees and the scribes are just rejoicing. Woo! These moral failures, look at them flocking to Jesus. Yes! No, they're grumbling. They're grumbling and they're envious. And they're saying, this man receives sinners and even eats with them. In that day, to dine with someone, to eat with someone, this is this picture of accepting that person into relationship. Jesus is accepting into friendship these sinners, these failures, these, these moral outcasts. And, 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 and we can hear the envy and the judgment and the condescension in the religious leaders is in these elites. They, they're, they're just saying, well, yeah. Well, what's he doing to draw all those people around himself? Kind of like, you know, if, if, if God's really moving in a church, or, or maybe there's a, a church that just has, you know, hundreds or thousands of people in it, the envious and the, and the self-righteous among us might say, well, they must just really be watering the message down if they're drawing all those people. They're not faithful like the five of us, or the hundred of us, or the three hundred of us. Um, there's this sense that we can easily slip into envy and comparison and grumbling. And, and we, hear, we just see them assuming the worst about Jesus. And they're proud. And, 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 uh, and in response to this grumbling of these religious elites, Jesus tells three stories. The story of the lost sheep. The, the, the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes and pursues that one sheep that's wandered away and brings that sheep home. He tells the story of the lost coin. The woman loses her coin and she looks all over her house. And, and uh, I mean, if it was today, you just look in the couch cushion and, you know, mystery solved, right? But, but she looks all over the place and she rejoices when she finds, um, when she finds the coin. 
And then he tells a story of these two lost sons, a story that we've come to name after the younger son. We've come to call it the story of the prodigal son. But it's really a story of of how these two sons are both lost, both in need, both wrong, and both uh, both deeply loved uh, by their father. Uh, Both of these sons we're going to read about are are lost, and both are in need of extravagant um, grace. But, but, But Jesus is telling this story in response to Here's all these sinners and failures that have gathered around him. And the religious elites are grumbling. The target audience of Jesus' story are the religious elite type of people. That's who's going to be challenged by this story. Okay, And so when we hear about prodigal, the prodigal son, um, maybe we think in terms of sinful, the sinful son, he certainly was that. But that word prodigal literally means one who spends money or resources freely and recklessly. Prodigal means to be wastefully extravagant. Prodigal means to to spend in a recklessly extravagant way. The prodigal son is called the prodigal son because he goes and he recklessly spends everything in a way that doesn't make any sense. Okay, husbands, just look straight ahead. Do not look at your at, at, at your wives at this at this moment. Okay, um, I've already seen some eyes go back and forth. Okay, um, you're in the danger zone. All right. Um, but as we, as, we, as we think of a prodigal in that sense, to be, to be wastefully extravagant, to be recklessly, to spend recklessly and extravagantly, uh, as we read the story, we're going to ask, who's really the prodigal one here? Who's really the one who's willing to spend and give in a recklessly extravagant way? And I, I want to give credit to Tim Keller for his book, Prodigal God. It's a great little book. It's a great presentation of the gospel. And, and, and pretty much uh, most of this is, is, is inspired by him. All of this is inspired by his book. Read The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. Awesome book. What I'd like for us to sink our teeth into this morning is that God's recklessly extravagant love is the deepest hope for both the rebellious and the religious. Whether we're wandering from God in rebellion today or whether we're wandering from God in rigidity and religion, or we've wandered from God in some combination of both of those ways, God's recklessly extravagant love is our deepest hope. So let's read the story. Uh, Luke 15, verse 11. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey in a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. That's where we get the prodigal idea. He squanders everything in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of the, of the country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one would give him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants um, have more than enough bread? But, if I perish here with, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and he is alive. He was lost and now is found. And they began to celebrate. They throw a party. 
Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and begged him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And the father said, son, you are always with me, with me and all that's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and as alive he was lost. And now he's found. So in act one of this story, um, we find the younger brother rejecting his father through rebellion. The younger brother rejects his father through outright rebellion. And this, this parable again is the story of these two lost sons. And in act one, we see the younger brother. And the younger brother is a picture of all of us who are seeking fulfillment through, uh, through um, following whatever feels right. Uh, the younger brother is a picture of everybody who's seeking fulfillment through chasing whatever our heart desires. And he bucks the system. He bucks the rules. He lives for himself. Um, and, 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 you know, there, there's a great movie out. It's free on Netflix. You can rent it on Amazon Prime. It's called The Heart of Man. And what a beautiful picture it is of, of the father's heart. And how the father, uh, God our father, he creates us to have this relationship with him that's intimate and that's deep and that's true. And there comes a point and there's a time that this son had that kind of relationship with his father. But somewhere along the way, the son, something over here catches his eye. And it looks good and it looks, it's seductive and it looks attractive. And he begins to long for that thing and want that other thing and set his affections on that thing. And it becomes more beautiful to him than his father. And so he demands his inheritance, and he leaves. And in the first century, Jesus' first century readers, when they heard about a son demanding his inheritance, I mean, they would have said, oh, no, he didn't really do that, you know, because, because he's saying at least two things to his father. One, he's saying, I want your stuff, but not you. Two, he's saying, I wish you were dead, because I, I shouldn't get your inheritance until, until you're dead. So I want your stuff, not you, and I wish you were dead. The father was rejected by the son. And the son takes, and the older brother would have, would have gotten a double portion of the estate. And so uh, the, 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 the younger son would have gotten what was left. So that's, a, the, since there's two sons, the younger son would have gotten a third of the estate. And so he takes his third of the father, the father liquefies a third of his resources, and the son takes a third of those resources, and he goes on his journey, and he squanders everything. The younger brother gathers his riches and he wanders into a far country and he loses it. He squanders it all in reckless living. He sought fulfillment and ends up empty and hungry and alone. Has that ever been your story? This thing over here, this relationship or this addiction or this porn or whatever it is, this is going to fill me up. This is going to make me feel okay. Uh, this bigger house or, or, or nicer car, this is going to fill me up. And, and then it doesn't. And, and what ends up happening is I end up alone and afraid and empty and hungry. What promised him life actually only delivered death. And he represents all of us seeking fulfillment and doing what feels right. Some of us have traveled into these far countries. And some of us at this moment are in the far country. And we've rebelled against our Father. So after 
openly rebelling, rebelling against his father, this younger son. He winds up empty and alone, and, and he's wandered, and he's squandered, and, and he sought fulfillment, but he's ended up empty, and now he comes to his senses. I'd rather be my father's servant than here. And so he works up his speech, and he's going to go, and he's going to ask if he can be a, a hard hand of his father. And, and, and two things there he's saying. One, um, I'm not worthy to be called your son, and two, if I'm a hard hand, I can start paying off the debt that I owe you. I'm never going to, but I want to pay off this debt somehow. And so he begins his journey home. And we find the father uh, who's been rejected. Who in here has ever been rejected? Anybody? We enjoy that feeling? It's terrible, isn't it? And when you get rejected, how do you feel about the person who rejected you? Don't we normally start finding reasons to hate the person who rejected us and making an enemy out of them. But that's not the Father's heart. The Father's looking on the horizon. And he's, he's looking for the day that his son comes home. And he's already humiliated himself, the Father has, by, I mean, all his friends at the coffee shop would have said he was, he was crazy to give, to give a third of your estate to your, your, your rebellious son. That's nuts. Nobody does that. And now he sees his son you know, limping home and he gathers up his robes. And, you know, it's kind of like if you see me running, uh, you better start running too. I mean, men in this day didn't run, okay? And so it was humiliating. And he humiliates himself again by gathering up his robes and running. And he, and he meets his son and he embraces him and he puts a ring on his finger and the best robe in his house he puts on his son's shoulders, which the best robe would have been the father's own robe. And he kills the fattened calf and he throws a party. In Act 1, as Act 1 closes, this is the greatest picture of restoration that could ever be painted. In the restoration of the younger brother, we see how prodigal God's grace is. That, God's, that God spends His love and His grace in a recklessly extravagant way. There's no sin. There's no wretchedness that He won't restore. He won't forgive. How recklessly extravagant is his love. There's no sin, no rebellion that he won't redeem. So act one closes with the party. And then act two begins. Where's the older brother? He's in the field doing what he's supposed to do. Because that's what he always does. What he's supposed to do. And the older brother, again, who's the target audience of this story? The, the sinners and tax collectors have, have gathered to Jesus. They're like the younger brother, the prodigal son. The religious elites are also watching and grumbling. They're like the older brother in the story. Jesus isn't telling this story to beckon prodigals to come to him because they already are. That's already happening. They can't resist Jesus. He's telling the story as a way of calling out to and pleading with the older brothers among us. The scribes and Pharisees, are they moved to tears when they hear about the prodigal son returning home? Oh, what a beautiful story. No, they're going to crucify Jesus before we get out of this book. They're not moved to tears. They're moved to anger. So far, they've responded like the older brother in the story. And so in Act 2, we, we find the older brother in the field doing what he's supposed to do. He's outraged, and he stands outside like this. Each of my kids get to a certain age and, and, and they like to pretend like they're mad. They learn what anger is and they, they've all learned to do this right there. And that's how I picture the older brother. He's out there sulking. He's pouting. He's mad. He's got a good mat on. He's not going to let up. And he's keeping score of everything he's ever done. And the father humiliates himself again. 
he goes and he pursues his older son. See, sometimes we have this picture in our mind that Jesus loves the failures and he hates the upright. No, he, he loves, he pursues us all. Whether we're religious or whether we're rebellious, he is pursuing all of us. And this father goes and pursues the older son. He, he invites him to the party. Look at the older son's words. What do they reveal? Um, he says in verse 28, he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But then this son of yours came, and you killed the fattened calf. What are we seeing revealed in the, in the words of the older brother? It was easy to see how the, the younger brother only cared about the father's stuff and didn't really care about the father's heart. But come to find out, the older brother, even though he stayed home, he only cared about the father's stuff and he didn't care about the father's heart. He wasn't doing all the right things for his father. He was doing all the right things for himself. And in reality, this isn't the story of a lost son and a good son. This is a story of two sons who are lost, but their lostness looks different. One knows he's lost. And one doesn't. The hearts of these two sons are both equally rebellious and equally far from their father. The older brother represents those who seek salvation and happiness through rigidly keeping the rules, doing the right things. The younger son is separated from the father by his rebellion. The older son is separated from him by his righteousness. Tim Keller writes, Elder brothers, listen to this, elder brothers have an undercurrent of anger toward life's circumstances. Hold grudges long and bitterly. Look down at people of other races, religions, lifestyles. Experience life as a joyless, crushing drudgery. Have little intimacy and joy in their prayer lives. Have a deep insecurity that makes them overly sensitive to criticism and rejection, yet fierce and merciless in condemning others. What a terrible picture. Yeah, any of us resemble that? No, there's a lot of days I resemble that. As we look at the older brother's character, we start to understand why the younger brother wanted to leave home. And if we find that as, 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 as Christians we have a hard time filling the church with younger brothers, maybe it's because more of us are like older brothers than we want to admit. And the gospel says both of these sons are in need. The gospel says both of these sons are wrong. Both of them are dead wrong. And the gospel says both of them are deeply loved. And the gospel says both of them are invited to the party. You are invited to the party that God is throwing. Whether you're in open rebellion, or whether you're uh, upright and religious, or whether we're some kind of combination of both, you're invited to the party. And in telling the story, Jesus is inviting the scribes and the Pharisees then and now, come to the party! And some of us in this room have been doing the right thing for so long, we don't even remember why we're doing it. And you don't have to be religious, by the way, to be like the older brother. Some of us have been so convinced of our own goodness, we don't even notice anymore how we continually size other people up and compare them to our own standard of righteousness and how I compare my best day to your worst day. Some of us today, here and now, resent God. And we're saying, what about me? And God's recklessly extravagant love is the deepest hope for all of us, whether we're rebellious, whether we're religious. Act 3. 
will the older brother join the party? Jesus kind of leaves us in suspense. We don't know if he does or doesn't. We're left with an unknown. Does the older brother come to the table? Does he unclench his fists and embrace his father? Does he open his heart? And as I read this story, and more importantly, as I let this story read me, as I let this story read me, I see times in my life that I've been the younger brother. There's been ongoing, not just since I was a teenager, there's been ongoing times in my life when I've been open and been in open rebellion against my father and I've been seeking life and fulfillment elsewhere. Believing sins, false promises, and ending up alone and ashamed. There's been times in my life where I've been the older brother and I've been arrogantly convinced of my goodness. I've been keeping score. I've been resenting God, resenting other people, even while I kept all the right rules for all the wrong reasons. And in reality, I am daily prone to wander in rebellion and in religion at the same time. And my heart, and I believe this isn't just me, our hearts need to daily be grounded in the love of the Father. It's a question to think about. Who bore the cost of the younger brother's restoration? Who paid his tab? Restoration was free to the younger brother, but somebody paid. In a sense, the father paid. It was his robe he gave. It was his ring he gave. It was his, fat, his fattened calf that he slaughtered. But in another sense, it was the elder brother that paid and bore the price tag. Because think about it. The younger brother got his share of the inheritance already. And now he gets restored to be a son again. Dad's going to die. And now I'm going to have to split this thing with my younger brother again. Wait a minute. That, that was my calf that got slaughtered. So in a way, it's the father that bears the, the price, but in another way, it's the son who bears the cost. And as we read this story, whether we're the younger brother or the older brother or both, we're awakened, I hope we're awakened, to this recklessly extravagant love of our father. But I hope we're also awakened that there is an older brother Hang in here with me. There is an older brother that's true. And it's not like the older brother in the story. See, wouldn't it have been beautiful if the older brother in the story, instead of sitting at home doing all the right things, what if he had followed his younger brother? If he had searched every brothel and every bar until he found him. And then he grabbed him by the scuff of the neck and he drug him back home and said, this isn't who God's called you to be. That's not what the brother in the story did, but that's what your true older brother has done. Jesus Christ is called the firstborn of many brethren. You're called joint heirs with him. And Jesus left his father's house. Jesus spent everything he had on sinners like you and me. He is the true prodigal son. He wastefully, some would say, recklessly and extravagantly pours out his life for those that didn't appreciate it and didn't even see their need for it. And as he dies on the cross, I'm convinced that as Jesus returns to his Father, 
while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. And his father girded up his robes and ran to meet him. What a beautiful picture of God's incredible, redeeming love. So once I, my heart is pierced that I've always had this longing to go home. And now in Christ, you know, the Father has sent the Son and He's come to us and He's come and He's called us out of whatever pit He finds us in and He's called us home. You know, the story is true of all of us. We've all wondered. We've all left our Father's house even if we never left. We wandered through rebellion or through self-righteousness. And Jesus traveled into our far country and He found us and He spent everything on us. Recklessly and extravagantly, He pursued us. And once that pierces our hearts, that God has thrown a party and He has invited you to it, we start to become people who want to invite other people to the party. So last week, we had a team down in Brazoria, down other side of Houston, doing some, a lot of drywall and tape embedding after all the um, hurricanes and flooding. Would you pull up that picture? One night, we went, we drove about an hour to the beach, and we had dinner on the, on the beach, kind of a fun night. And it was really, really, really cold, by the way. You think beach, spring break, wear shorts, false, don't do that. It was freezing. It was freezing. And it was miserable. And there was a huge sign, not pictured, a huge sign that says, do not drive on the beach. Okay? Well, these guys didn't heed the sign, them and about half a dozen others. And they go driving on the beach, and they get stuck. And they have no hope of getting themselves unstuck. And they're trying, and the more they try, the deeper they sink. And they're just not going anywhere. And me and all of my pastoral wisdom and compassion, my thought was, you should have read the sign, dude. You, you know, learn a lesson. Okay? Um, so you can guess which brother I was like in that, in that scenario. And Jerry, who shared earlier, said, hey, these guys are stuck. They need rescue. And they're going to be grateful if they get it. Let's go be Christians. I was like, okay, be Christians. (laughs) And so we go and we gather up and and, and we push. And we push this guy and then a few other guys out of the sand. And we got people all around us who are stuck. And once we get that We have been, our our Lord has found us and sought us and he pulled me out of the mud. We begin to be people who say, you know what? You don't have to wallow around in the mud by yourself. Let us help you get unstuck. Once that grabs our heart, we want to share that with other people. Um, We're going to move into a time of communion. The band's coming. We're going to move into a time of communion. And this table here, is a foretaste of that incredible party that all of us are invited to. And Jesus is asking, will you come? As the curtain closes, have you said, yes, I want to come to the party? Will you say, yes, I want to join the party? This is a picture of this feast that's going to happen one day. And he wants you to be part of it. So as we remember Christ's death, As we reflect on our own hearts, let's also look forward to this great feast to come.